welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer, CEO here at 11FS. In this episode, as we round out 2023, I have pulled together some of our favorite Fintech Insider moments. We're going to look back at a pretty jam-packed year of Fintech Insider news. Uh, We've had the highs from the exciting startups raising money to established firms finally making money and a whole lot of M&A in between. But we've also had the lows. Some companies went under while others simply underperformed. And as a whole, the world battles through some pretty rough economic times. As we close out the door on the year, we shine a light on some of the biggest stories of 2023 as well as some of our favorites. Let's meet the team who's going to be on this episode. Firstly, I am delighted to welcome Kate Moody, Strategy Director at 11FS. Congrats on another year of podcasting under your belt, Kate. Uh, what's been your highlight so far? Oof, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Just so many. Um, I think, sadly, actually, my highlight was something that didn't even make it into the final edit. I had a wonderful pre-show chat with some guests about flapjacks, which for some reason, didn't make it into the final cut, but actually, for me, it was pretty life-changing. So fintech's one thing, but really, it's all about flapjacks. I can get behind that. Uh, you know, biscuits, confectionery, you know, all of these things uh, add up to a happier life, don't they, at that point? But uh, uh, good to have you on the show anyway, Kate. Uh, next up, we're also joined by David Barton Grimley, Strategy Director here at 11FS. How does it, f- I mean, you're a fully-fledged, like, you know, badge and everything fintech insider host now, David. How's it going? Yep, I've sewed the badge to my T-shirt. I mean, big kudos to the both of you. It's a hard job. I mean, it, it really is, particularly, you know, doing this over the last few years. But I'm, I'm loving it. I think it's, it's great fun. The more you do it, the more you relax into it, the more you enjoy it. There's like this positive cycle. You've got to get through those, Kate, first hundred episodes. And then it's like, it's all downhill from there, isn't it? You know? Pretty much, yeah. Very good. And finally, a big hello to Rachel Pandian, who is a venture product lead here at 11FS. I I guess uh, you're the newest member of the podcast team, Rachel, but um, good to see we've not scared you off with your, uh, you know, your first few episodes uh, getting in front of the microphone. So how are you doing? Have you enjoyed it? Yeah, I mean, good to see I haven't scared you guys off yet either. Um, But now I'm doing well. I'm excited to run through all of the stories um, that we've covered throughout the year and hopefully not as much by now, pay later, although I'm not I'm not sure that's on the cards for today. <laughs> I don't know. I've still got a lot of Christmas presents to buy. So like, uh, we'll see. Uh, it might not be on the agenda for the show, but probably on the agenda for many of us. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Maybe let's dive in straight away. Um, I think we should probably start by doing a quick temperature check on the world of fintech around us, because for all of the ups and downs within the industry, there's been a whole lot more turmoil really going on. Um, I, I think actually, I mean, we could jump straight into you know macroeconomic trends of uh, everything that's been happening over the last uh, last year but probably first and foremost interest rates like are a thing again that's weird isn't it it seems to have sort of broken some people's business models made gigantic business models for everybody else but uh david what do you think i mean there's people been scurrying around trying to figure out what this reality is yeah, and it's been a bit of a mixed picture, right? So if you are wise, for example, you're making masses and masses of profits um, partially off the back of in the, the interest rate increases. You mean and wise so, like the company or do you mean wise like a fellow who is, uh, you know, maybe slightly more astute? General wisdom. People who are more astute are making more money out of interest rates, I guess, but no, transfer-wise, um, right. very, very specifically. So I think their interest earned on customer cash balances jumped 848% 
I mean, that is a huge, huge amount. But it, but it isn't consistent across the world, right? So if you are a fintech and you're new to taking deposits and you're able to lend out those deposits and therefore make a spread on that, your net interest margin, then yes, you're going to be doing very well. But if you're a very large incumbent financial institution that has a very, very large loan book um, and some of those debts might be going bad, right, for example. So, you know, I've, I've seen news across the last year that the net interest margin is actually compressing a little bit in, in some markets. And then, of course, we you know, we sit here in the UK and we also think about the US and our interest rates increasing. But but actually, if you look all over the world where fintech is, um, it's a bit of a mixed picture, right? Like a lot of other countries are used to having much higher interest rates more historically and, and still have that as being the case. So yes, it's exciting in some cases, but I don't think it's a, a clear-cut win. I'm really interested to see as well like how long it takes to feed through to, to customers because we've had such a long time period of of such low interest rates that customers have almost got out of the habit, the majority of customers have almost got out of the habit of expecting their money to earn money. And I think we're still seeing that take some time to to kick in. You know, we've seen increase in switching rates in the UK, for example. Yeah, we are seeing people start to move their money around. But I think we've had such a long time of such historically low interest rates and then they've increased so rapidly that I think it has been a super interesting year to see how that feeds through to customers as well. Like actually you know, the time it takes to change expectations and behavior seems to be a lot longer than it does to change interest rates. You know, we've had 13 interest rate changes in the UK in like less than two years. So yeah, that kind of lag between what the industry is doing and, and what customers are expecting or looking for, I think for me is, is super interesting. Yeah, I massively agree because we've seen in the absence of savings accounts and ISAs doing anything for like the amounts of money that people are investing, they're looking for other products. But I think still I'm not seeing this consumer understanding of investments on the whole increase. We've got more products out there. Obviously, Nutmeg are doing very well at the moment. Monzo've added it to the app, but I don't think you're like average Joe truly understands what it means to invest and the long term it requires to get something meaningful back. And so I I don't know, I'm still, I think the trying to get savings habits back in and getting customers to feel confident in having a large chunk of money in it doing something rather than taking out products that aren't always in their best interest. It's, it'd be nice to see more of that coming into the market next year and going forwards. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a always the the flip of this is the hey, if you're sitting on loads of cash and the interest rate is there, wonderful, I make money from my money. That's that's awesome. But I guess the the sort of reality of the situation is we're we're still dealing with a a pretty um, turbulent time when it comes to cost of living crises and and obviously as interest rates go up on your savings, so do they on your credit cards and your loans and your mortgages. So I, I guess maybe the biggest hit to your point, Kate, hasn't yet been on, well, where do I put my millions? It's actually, Jesus Christ, how do I afford my mortgage? Uh, and the, you know, the housing market has definitely seen a, a real hit, hasn't it, in the the last uh, the last year. Skip, God, we've started this, we started very jovially talking about biscuits. It's all got quite dramatic soon, isn't it? But, uh, but the cost of living crisis definitely doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon, does it? No, absolutely not. And I think what we see in the mortgage space in particular is that you know, this isn't just a a one-time thing like this is going to have ripple effects for for years to come you know we've started to see you know, in the UK and in other markets the the 
increased burden of you know, higher interest rates leading to higher monthly mortgage repayments. You know, obviously, that directly impacts homeowners. It also impacts the rental market. You know, it's not just ordinary individuals who have mortgages; it's landlords too. You know, we've seen landlords increasing their costs, passing those on to renters. So you know, this whole space is is becoming increasingly expensive, and you know, that's not. And we're expecting interest rates potentially now to start to to kind of you know come back down, but that's not necessarily going to instantly impact on on that space. You know, we're going to see this increased sort of crunch on consumers' wallets for quite some time to come. So yeah, I think it's been a super interesting space this year. You know, obviously as David alluded to, interest rates have changed the business models for lots of fintechs, but they're also just changing the day-to-day lives of millions and billions of people around the world. So yeah, it's been I'd love to talk just about biscuits, but we probably should also <laughs> acknowledge the fact that lots of people might have had to cut back on their biscuits this year, sadly. Yeah. I really wonder the generational impact of this. Like, I, I'm i growing up and I see a lot of my friends who have parents who have bought houses years ago in London, and then they get to like live in that, or they might have bought a house like like no money at all in a really great location. I don't know many people my age who are looking to buy right now, especially in London, never mind the rest of the UK. What does this look like? What does wealth and what you pass on to your kids look like in 20 years time? Because like, I for one, like not buying a house for the next five years at least. It, it's, I think it shifts how people's finances look in the future. And especially with renting, like you can't even afford really to rent. Is this like... Is digital nomading the way forwards? I hope not, because it's really weird. I was going to say another word there, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I think the cost of living crisis, I think we feel it now, but the real impacts is something that's that's yet to come. And sorry, this just got more bleak and as I went on there. Maybe I should stop. <laughs> I feel like we were staring into Rachel's soul ever so slightly. There was the slight <sighs> moment of crisis where she planned out the next 30 years of her life there. It was, it was, it was a nice, nice touch. I guess to bring it back into the positive there, like one thing that I have loved seeing this year is the fact that you know, fintechs have been able to respond so much faster to these these ever shifting times. Like they've been able to adapt to these interest rate changes like pretty much instantly in some cases and pass those rates onto their customers much more directly. You know, we are seeing those larger firms struggling to to kind of make those speedy decisions because precisely as you said, David, like there's just so many more complexities on on their on their books, you know, they've got to juggle, you know, the the loan book plus plus the savings accounts. Like it's, it's just a more complex picture. But I've I've really enjoyed seeing fintechs kind of have this time in the sun where you know they're able to kind of really show to to customers that there's there's a benefit to you know, looking around and looking at other options. We know that the financial services space is absolutely crippled by inertia in many in many instances, and actually this has created a really tangible benefit for many customers to actually like get up and move their money. And in doing so, a lot of these fintechs have begun to build features which provide actual value, you know, rather than just like, you know, where PFM used to be a few years ago, you know, let's provide a graph and show where your your forecasted earnings are going to be. But actually, you know, maybe here is a better deal for a, for an energy bill or here is how we're going to build a credit profile a little bit better. So it's been great to see some of these fintechs, I don't know, like Snoop, Plum, Nude, all of these companies who we've been discussing on the podcast over the last year really try to think more thoughtfully about how 
what customers can do better with the less money that they have to to spend. I mean, what that translates though back into profit for the fintechs, I think, is very difficult to to say. You know, if you're unable to take deposits and lend off those deposits, like how banking works, right? Then you know, where's the money going to come from? Where's the profit going to come from? Well, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? I know we, over the last couple of years, we've always had the debate around what's the strategic advantage of a fintech, what's the strategic advantage of a bank, you know, and actually in such complex times being even vaguely monolithic when it comes to product offering is probably the worst thing you can possibly do. Because if the backside falls out of one product, you are screwed as a business. Whereas actually this might be really, this is the heyday for the banks again, right? You know, we're seeing valuations tumbling. We're seeing acquisition opportunities huge. We're seeing, you know, whole swathes of people's uh, product books suddenly becoming profitable that weren't profitable for a really long time. Like that's an amazing space. And definitely, I mean, from the things that we do as as an organization, you're seeing people come to the fray that maybe weren't able to justify doing stuff before, but actually because of the market, uh, you know they're kings of the world again. So it's um, it is a, it has been a funny old year, and uh, and like I say, I mean that's without even throwing in the sort of geopolitical side of things with everything. Obviously the Ukrainian war, we've seen everything that's happening with the conflict in Gaza. Um, I'm never quite sure when you classify a conflict versus a war. Is there like an official? You call it a war after a period of time, like. But it's a special just, military operation. Is that yeah, exactly. I'm not sure who's quite downplaying one of them and upplaying another one, but uh but it feels like we're all in uh quite weird times, doesn't it, in that sense, in terms of all of the things that we're seeing locally, but all the things that we're seeing on TV as well. But I mean this all does sound very doom and gloom though, I I know. And and there were a few things that were were better than twenty twenty two, we should sort of add before everybody's like, Oh Jesus, this is a bit depressing end of the year. Uh, I mean Revolut reported its first year of profit. I mean, that's good. We're seeing sort of fintechs growing up into, uh, you know, profitable businesses, particularly for somebody like Revolut. I mean, Revolut are kind of the the WeWork strategy, but for fintech, aren't they? Like go big and scale really effectively. But it's great to see them get to profitability and not go the way of see uh, WeWork did, which was uh, filing for bankruptcy um uh, was it three months ago, four months ago? Um, so, I mean, that's a good news story, right? Yeah, I like. I was so skeptical about Revolut for so long, and I. The one thing you can always admire about them is the pace at which they push different types of products out, and they always talked about their ambitions for a super app. But now, seeing Revolut Ten and the the rework of the app come to life, you can actually see what looks like a financial super app in place and them turning into profitability i think it was a big bet they placed on their strategy and it's it's paying off i think and i i love the way that they've structured it even from the way their app looks to the premium models that they offer the tiered servicing i think that that is a business model that hasn't been done in banking in the uk at least well and seeing that come into the market now i think it's amazing to see them doing it i'd love to see what happens for like apps like monzo who came out with a much more sparing product now their app is turning into a really bloated like i have a premium account with monzo it's it's hard to find all that functionality what does it look like for an, for a startup that didn't bet on being a super app but still needs to compete on all of that functionality but will they get a banking license in the uk Ooh, true will that happen <laughs> i think no i don't mm, think so maybe I think the thing that I'm finding really interesting, I remember, you know, when I first joined 11FS many, many moons ago now, like when we were sat in rooms with senior bank executives, the conversation around fintechs was 
in all honesty, quite dismissive, right? Like, oh yeah, like they've got a nice design and yeah, they've got a nice app, but like, what are they actually going to do? You don't really hear that conversation anymore. Or if you do, like it's kind of like one lone skeptic in the corner. And I think actually kind of that that whole industry perspective, I think has been shifting gradually. Like it's not just happened overnight this year, but I've, I've noticed it particularly this year that actually it's not about our fintechs like here to stay. It's like they're here to stay, but where are they going to go and where are we going to go therefore as a result? Um, so I think that's been obviously like Revolut, interesting to shine a spotlight on them particularly, but you know, I've been loving seeing across this year, like fintech after fintech after fintech in lots of different geos having success and, and starting to kind of build their way back up to profitability. You know, we've seen Atom Bank, you know, Monzo also kind of going to profitability earlier this year. Like lots of them are starting to make these commercial models make sense in large part driven by the interest rate environment. So will it last? Wait and see. But yeah, I'm just loving kind of the the change that you're seeing within financial services as a whole in response to fintech. That's been great to see too. And what do you think that um, that sort of driver there, Kate, in terms of the the sort of people sort of sitting up? Because because definitely, as you say, there's the the narrative has shifted, hasn't it? It's no longer the when they get to uh, is that profitability, or do you think it is just the sheer volume of? I mean, if you look at Monzo, used to be a you know pocket money for adults type thing. Uh, actually, now it's doing investments and pensions and insurance. Like it's like it's actually doing sort of big boy, big girl stuff, right? I think it's kind of a whole combination of things. Like I think, yes, it's profitability. I think it's, yeah, as you say, like it's the product set, it's the hires, it's the customer numbers. I think it's just like the the fact that they're still here. I mean, I know we might come onto it later when we talk about sort of movement of people, but I was thought it was really interesting in you know, Jonas Templestein's letter that he published around his departure from Monza. You know, he was talking that you know, even he thought back in 2020 when Monza were really struggling that they should have just taken the easy option and and sold, and they didn't. So the fact that for some of these fintechs that have hung around, you know, they've they've ridden through some difficult times and. And yeah, I, I just I think it's really cool to see what happens next. I'm really mm. excited for next year. How, how much um, how much do you reckon on that though, Kate? Is like it's not just the fintechs now because like uh, I think you know we we've got a kind of framework. We talk about the banking battlefield. Go look it up on YouTube. Anybody listening to this conversation? Uh, then actually, like the people who are on the banking battlefield now are not just the you know the teeny weeny fintechs. Uh, we were talking about teeny weeny beanies earlier on, weren't we, David? Um, but the idea that essentially you know. I mean, somebody like Chase in the UK, like that's a that's a heavily capitalized gigantic bank, but is being able to act and run like a fintech, like almost like the threat vectors fundamentally shifted from what it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing probably at some point in this show, we might talk about a little company called Apple as well. So yeah, I mean, there's, we've we talked about, we've talked for a long time, as you say, about like what that battlefield could become. I think like that battlefield is now established and it's about, you know, who's who's going to thrive and who's going to fall by the wayside. So, Well, and speaking of organisations falling by the wayside, unfortunately, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, RIP, uh, I feel like actually there's somebody we should talk about as didn't quite make it to the end of the year, but, you know, biggest bank to fall since 2008 financial crisis. Uh, I mean, it was a, it, it's obviously sad for Silicon Valley Bank and the people that are there. Bizarrely, do you know what? Uh, not sure if this is for the podcast, so let's see if this keeps in the edit or not. But I had their wrapping up letters uh, come across my desk uh, two weeks ago, actually, in terms of all of the people that they used and everything. I mean, that was a very well-run bank, mm. uh, like in terms of the vendors that they had, the tech estate that they, they had, the people that they worked with. Um, 
I mean, it's it's sad to see them sort of leave the market. Equally, it was pretty damn impressive to see how quickly that got dealt with by regulators all around the world to stop that being a in an already you know tumultuous marketplace. The impact to you know the th- the work that the Fed did, the PRA, the FCA, the government to allow uh, HSBC and various others. Uh, I know uh, NBC over in Canada as well picking up the uh, the uh, business banking book. I mean, it's it's interesting to see how that regulators can move really quickly when they need to, right? Yeah, and uh, HSBC Innovation Banking in the UK, right? It'd be interesting to see what they uh, what what they do with that there. But I think the interesting story about SVB, as much as it is about their collapse and some of the riskier investments they made with the book, is also a bit of a reflection on the startup industry overall in the in the US, in the sense that you had these huge, huge, almost passive deposit balances, right, with fintechs and well, fintech startups that were maybe not profitable or not revenue generating, sitting on large quantities of cash. And the very second they got wind of there maybe being a risk on on Twitter, uh, which is now called X, um, and various other platforms rapidly removing that money and trying to stick it to somewhere, you know, secure and safe, because without that cash, there is no roadmap, which is, I think, in some senses different to how other businesses operate in the world, right? You have incoming cash balances constantly from revenue that you are making. You have distributed banking balances across multiple banks all across the world. So there's something quite interesting about the situation with the startup industry overall um, as being quite, quite negative. Um, yeah. Anybody else on that in the room? No, I mean, I, I think it was a hugely interesting episode. I thought it, again, it, I thought it was an interesting reflection on the perception of the fintech market as well, because certainly what we saw in the UK was, I think, again, the very initial reaction from the regulator was, oh, it's quite a small bank. You know, it's only got 3,300 customers and it's only got, you know, 6.7 billion pounds in deposits. Like, is it a systemic risk or one of the phrases that people like to use? But actually kind of when you dig beneath the surface of it and you look at like, okay, well, yes, it might not be like a huge number of customers, but who are those customers and what are they contributing to the economy? What are they what do they represent in terms of growth potential for the markets that they're in? Um, I thought it was really interesting from that perspective as well, because once they actually started to think about who those clients were, the perspective, as you say, Dave, changed like super rapidly and they made some really important decisions very quickly. I still find it funny they called it Operation Yeti. I don't really know why. I don't know what Yetis have got to do with um, Silicon Valley Bank. But anyway, that was what the UK... Uh, regulator, I think, called it when they sort of worked through the weekend to, to kind of come up with this plan for HSBC. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a similar one to. I mean, I, I guess um, obviously Silicon Valley Bank didn't didn't make it, and the fact that the government and everybody reacted so quickly to stop it becoming a you know a domino effect. Um, I mean, Metro Bank this year had a had a little bit of a hiccup, didn't it? And actually, it felt like the media were trying to turn that into a problem. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, how these things get portrayed in the market. Uh, you know, most people walking around the street, uh, you know, if you're walking around in Norwich, like Silicon Valley Bank doesn't sound like it's going to affect you. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I guess Metro Bank doesn't because it's uh, very London, London-centric, London but it definitely felt like the media were kind of after Metro Bank a little bit to make that into a to a big deal. But it's great to see that actually all of the financing got pl- put in place and everything got uh, moved forwards. But I mean, it was definitely a year that we saw not just, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, being acquired, but a lot of other uh, organizations being acquired where small little fintech called uh, UBS acquiring a tiny little fintech called Credit Suisse. That was a that was a weird one, wasn't it? Um, Three billion, which was interesting. But I mean, I, I can't help but feel, uh, I mean, in everything you sort of hear 
uh, is that that you know acquisition and integration is going swimmingly in terms of actually sort of pulling those two organizations together. I feel like the obvious thing coming from the UBS credit suites has to be the regulator stepping in at some point to do a separation though. Having seen this movie with Lloyd's Banking Group and TSB and and obviously uh you know everything with with RBS and onwards with uh, Williams and Glynn, like surely UBS are gonna have to go carve that up and sell off pieces of it at some point. What do you guys think? Yeah, and actually with the Williams and Glynn example um you mentioned they they had to stop that, didn't they? They couldn't actually get to the end of it because of how difficult it is to you know, well, in that case, they were divesting, right? So the operational complexities. I've got some stories that are very much not for the podcast that actually have around a whiteboard explaining to people why that was a very bad idea, but we'll come back yeah. to it over a beer, David, don't worry. Yeah, I do too. I mean, God, yeah, that was a that was a really tough time. But I think just to the, to the macro point of these two behemoths, these two whales of, of an organization coming together, you can imagine all of the operational organizational complexity, duplicated roles, who does what, God, I, I don't want to be in that program team. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, to your point, David, about like, will they you know, split them back up again? I suppose if you believe the reports that are starting to come out now about like the staff turnover, then you know, I think the risk is maybe there aren't any I mean, Credit Suisse employees left by the time by the time they get to that point. I think I've seen reports of you know, 150 people resigning a day um, because you know, UBS have stated, understandably, you know, that they will look to make cuts, you know, bringing these two organisations together with a lot of overlap, doing a lot of similar things with similar types of clients. You know, it doesn't make sense to keep two you know, mirror organisations running in parallel. So UBS have said, you know, we're going to make cuts. Credit Suisse staff are probably saying, oh, don't fancy hanging around for this. So yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting also to see kind of what the ripples effects are of, of you know, the talent movement. You know, we know that there's lots of, you know, there's a lot, we have a lot of conversations with a lot of organisations about the disruption that needs to happen in the wealth space. You know, the fintech hasn't necessarily really moved into that market yet. It'll be interesting to see if, if some of these people from from Credit Suisse end up deploying their insights and experience somewhere else, yeah, I I, um, I don't want to sound uh, callous, but actually, it's not a bad thing because somebody would have weighed up. Uh, it's not it's not a bad thing for those organisations. I actually feel like banking has been terrible at actually getting the ROI out of big integrations like that. Uh, you know, having seen HSBC and NatWest and, you know, Bank of America and a bunch of people do this, typically they never actually ever see through on the ROI. So if they're at this stage able to start looking at, you know, this person looks very similar to this person, we should do it one way. Like, I, I'm bizarrely impressed that they're able to do that, if that makes sense. So, uh, but as you say, the the shakeout will be long on it and uh, uh, and probably a lot of people leaving to go and figure out what they really want to do with their life in terms of fintech startups that will be born out of this period of time. Um, as you touched on, Kate, earlier on, there are some sort of notable changes in terms of some of the, the big players as well. Jonas leaving uh, Monzo. I mean, it feels about four seconds ago we were doing a – um, a takeover show of Fintech Insider in uh, Monzo's offices. This was like way back in the, like they were still putting cards in envelopes by hand in their office and distributing them. And uh, we had uh, Jonas and Hugo and uh, Jamie and a few other, but like it was, it was really weird. But uh, the thing that strikes me every time I see Jonas now is like, he's like, he's a, 
he's a grown up. Do you know what I mean? Like he's a uh, he's gone from being like the starry eyed, uh, you know, take on the world to to actually he's delivered and made those things happen, which is amazing. So the the letter was interesting, Kate, wasn't it? The sort of you know, uh, it didn't feel quite like a a goodbye letter, but it it had those vibes a little bit, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was it was it's always interesting when someone leaves kind of what they want to document as kind of like their their farewell, like what they kind of want to focus in on. Um, yeah, no, um, I mean, I've, I've not met him personally, but obviously everyone raves about, you know, lots of components of the Monzo stack. Um, you know, he's off to settle down in the Cotswolds with his family. So all the best, all the best to him. I suppose it's an interesting time for Monzo now that, and he does again call this out in his letter, you know, that you know, he is the last, the last founding or member of that founding team to leave. You know, they've brought in some really experienced bank executives, TS and Il, um, you know, and the COO to, to kind of really help steer them into this this new period of their growth. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see, you know, do, does the founders leaving the room have a massive impact? You know, Rachel, as you alluded to, you know, we've we've seen Monzo play around with its app layout. You know, they're going through some growing pains. Um said from a position of you know, deep love and respect um but yeah it'd be really interesting to see how what they do what they do post post Jonas I've loved like um both Jonas's letter and Tom Blomfield's accounts of like the growth journey of Monzo but it definitely feels like they were founders for that zero to one step and Jonas I suppose from that one to ten maybe one to five I imagine Monzo's ten is unreal and we're, we're yet to get there I do feel like there is a time and place for those founders with that specific set of skills because it's a completely, it's a different challenge. It's a different team mindset. It You're you're motivated differently and you operate completely differently. And as you move into Monzo, like it feels like they're almost an incumbent now. Not like, I mean, they move very differently and much quicker, but they have such a large market share. They have a different level of regulator scrutiny. They do need a different team. And it's, you know, similar to Anne Bowden leaving Starling, Sam Altman leaving ChatGPT, although I'm I'm sure ChatGPT are more gutted about it. I think there's so much more for Starling, Monzo, ChatGPT, all these companies, like their growth journey is just different. And I, I think bringing a new team in shows a great level of founder awareness to say that you're not the right fit and there's someone who can do this better to, to push that company to the next level. I, I, I love seeing that kind of movement in the industry. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating times, isn't it? If the, uh, if the companies can outlive the founders, not literally, like, uh, you know, uh, Jonas and Anne, uh, reportedly their health is very good, but, but if they uh, can continue to sort of fly along that vision, fly along the, the mission of really where they want to get to, uh, foreshadowing slightly a show that we'll have in January, but uh, based on the conversations with TS, I think they're only getting warmed up. So, uh, and clearly it wouldn't be up to 10, Rachel, obviously it would be 11, right? Sorry, my bad, 11. There we go. And on that note, we better take a quick break. Uh, Coming up, we're going to continue to look back on the biggest stories and events of the past year. What went wrong with Goldman Sachs and Apple? Mm, It was a bit weird, wasn't it? Uh, Will you ever give all of your money to Elon Musk? I'm not sure I will, to be honest with you. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Fintech Insider Insights, where we've kind of decided that the world's still in a bit of a weird place, uh, to put it pretty mildly, I'd I'd say. Uh, However, the banking and fintech world does appear to be bouncing back, which is good. Perhaps one of the reasons for this flurry is of course, all of the partnerships that we're seeing across the industry. We're going to take a little bit of a closer look at the success stories in a moment, but there was one story that caught really everybody's attention. It was a bit of a kind of a rom-com vibe going on, but Goldman Sachs and Apple, I mean, they found each other, 
Their relationship got a bit rocky. It played out in front of everybody. And uh, I think the divorce is um, not what they would be calling uh, amicable, would it? But uh, all nearly within the, the encapsulated within the year. So what went wrong? Uh, I mean, in August, Goldman Sachs announced a partnership with Apple and the launch of that game-changing credit card that they were, were going after. However, in October, Goldman announced that the sale of Green Sky following third quarter losses and scaling back of their consumer lending strategy, which put its partnership with Apple in doubt. Uh, we discussed this back on the 23rd of October edition of Fintech Insider News, uh, which actually, Rachel, was your debut. So this is going to be, uh, you know, more of the same for you. I mean, it feels like uh, the whole sort of Goldman Sachs Apple love story is going to be a bit of a whirlwind romance. But I mean, David, what do you think? Does this have a, a knock on effect for all of the sort of Ferrari that we've seen around embedded finance and everything that goes with it? Yes, I think it does. I mean, it's a bit sad face, right? Because all the way back towards the beginning of um, 2023, and even in 2022, Goldman Sachs and everything that they were doing was held up really as the exemplar in the future for what embedded finance looks like. So if you just take a step back and look at some of the things that Goldman Sachs were trying to do, you know, they were really trying to build this entirely new digital banking stack in transaction banking, right? And they had Marcus as well there and acquiring things like Green Sky and launching the Apple card was all about sharing data and, you know, making more contextual lending and basically embedded finance, right? And to see that almost on the rocks and in tatters is in some ways a little bit depressing, but it does also show just how unbelievably difficult consumer credit, consumer finance actually is and how many years and years of investment you have to make before you will realize a return. And ultimately, um, you know, DJ Soul at one point sort of stood up and said, well, actually, this is loss making. It's going to be loss making for many, many more years. And we need to double down on on the business that that makes us that makes us money. And, and also, you know, I do think maybe they made some mistakes with the with the credit card as well. I mean, wouldn't necessarily call it a subprime credit card, but certainly the kind of people taking out lending on that card was more for just, you know, we just need to buy Apple products on the card and maybe not pay back that debt. And that that resulted in quite a but few. It's such debts. a good point about Apple though, because everyone was like, they're such a great brand and like working them with them, like it's obviously going to put your product in front of so many more people but it's it's still apple like they are so specific with what they put out and they're not they're not a financial player necessarily so they're they're not going to abide by the same way a bank operates and for someone like goldman to enter a relationship like that with them i can only imagine like two very strong entities with very strong brands trying to come together to create something and apple I always thought they could go at it alone. Like it's obviously partnerships are a good way to make advances. But as Apple, do you need those partners? And we're starting to see that now. Apple are like, well, we'll do open banking and we'll launch our own buy now, pay later. And who needs a bank? And I think it's so true with the resources they have, the brand that they have. What they could do more with more of is that financial due diligence around the customer base because iPhones are expensive and yet somehow everyone has them and it's not because they can afford them. But... I think as they step into the financial space, that's the kind of stuff that regulators will impose on them and they can learn their own way of doing that well. But Apple, it was a super interesting partnership to go into considering that you wouldn't have had the same power you would have with a slightly less formidable brand. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if I wonder how bad the ending of this relationship is really because i mean apple are not the easiest organization to work for i imagine the negotiations of like which bit 
who did what where, you know, like uh, who the judge says was at fault for this relationship breaking down is going to be quite an interesting one, isn't it? But uh, um, one thing for sure, I mean, the Apple's capability in financial services is not going away anytime soon. Like, uh, you know, I go whole months now not knowing where the hell my wallet is and I'm paying for everything on Apple Pay. I know it's not the uh, the credit card that was launched over in the US, but when it comes to payments capability, they're absolutely killing it, right? In the UK as well, obviously, all of the work that they did the acquisition of uh, Credit Kudos and the work that they're doing to integrate that in the UK. Um, I think to your point, uh, was that credit card actually any good that they were building over there? I know they spent a lot of time and money on it, but I remember Jason sending me a message when it was announced, which was like, basically, this is like version one of Monzo, basically. So like, you know, I sort of feel like maybe the market's moved on a little bit. Um, but, um, but maybe cause we're living in the future potentially, but, uh, we'll see. I mean, there were a lot of other kind of partnerships that were announced and moved through. I mean, Adyans and Klarna's, uh, team up to make cross-border payments easier for SMEs seem to, uh, go, uh, um, a little bit un- unnoticed as a kind of a big deal, but that's two gigantic organizations playing nicely with, to it, to each other. Uh, Adyan and Klarna are, uh, uh, really interesting companies. They seem like, you know, grown up companies where partnerships would probably work quite effectively. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's interesting because they've both, you know, they're global companies, they've both you know, achieved huge scale, but they you know, aren't based on legacy systems. So I think it kind of makes sense, you know, two companies that probably are at sort of similar stages, probably similar degrees of like, you know, technical sophistication coming together to kind of plug each other's gaps or kind of, you know, move into areas where you know, one has a strength and, and one another, you know, someone else has a different strength. So yeah, I think it could be a really interesting, really interesting partnership. Also kind of you know, we've also talked recently on the show about the partnership between Wise as in you know, Transfer Wise of old and Alica Bank, you know, also again teaming up to again try and make this international payment money movement space for SMEs easier. And I just like have so much time for that as a you know problem to solve because you know SMEs have a lot to do and a lot to put up with and anything that can help make their lives easier is fine by me. There's definitely a big story under here about SMEs and, you know, how underserved they are globally, but also just how much money you can make out of providing services to um, SMEs, let's let's face it. And, and part of this partnership um, between Adyen and, and Klarna will be to make it easier for SMEs to basically get the money out of the transaction, right? So it's faster, potentially lower transaction fees, etc. So seeing this happen all over the world, you know, how does the merchant actually get paid? Paid. How can we reduce those merchant fees? How can we help SMEs trade across borders? Because cross-border payments is like fiendishly difficult to do, which is why you've got companies like Wise and maybe only just a couple of others doing really, really well at it. But a lot of people are actually really struggling. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating to see, isn't it? And and as you say, the sort of underserved nature of those SMEs, given they make such a, a gigantic proportion up of uh, of the SME market in every geography. I think one thing really consistently, Kate, you'll probably uh, nod along to this and jump in, is like any way you do research in SMEs, you find basically a bunch of people who don't want to engage with financial services in any way, shape or form, but so desperately need it to be better. Uh, and it's a, an interesting balancing act there. You know, we all say nobody starts a business to do business banking, uh, but the business banks force people to have to get all of those things in, in order in order to really operate, which um, doesn't often seem to be fair. No, absolutely not. And yeah, completely agree with, with that description. I suppose the thing that I always find really, really important to 
talk about when it comes to like SME as a label is just like how how many businesses that covers. And I think, you know, from freelancers all the way through to businesses with, you know, dozens, even even hundreds of employees. So it covers such a broad range of businesses in terms of their their scale, their financial maturity. And I suppose what we'd maybe seen in previous years was some innovation solving for the problems of particularly those one-man bands, the freelancers, those micro businesses. You know, we saw the likes of, you know, Tide in the UK, um, you know, lots of others around the world kind of focusing on that bottom end of the market. I'm really interested to see the likes of Alica Bank now starting to focus on what they describe as established businesses, those larger businesses, because I think that's a really interesting space. Like I love speaking to financial decision makers in those businesses because you can tell, David, they're kind of almost, they're coming out of that period of, I don't want to think about the finances, but they're sort of starting to sort of realise that, you know, oh crap, like actually if I want my business to grow, if I want my business to thrive, I've got to make smart decisions. I've got to be moving my money effectively. I've got to be putting my money in the right place. I've got to be managing my my responsibilities. Like all of that sort of stuff comes into play. And businesses are fundamentally trying to like go for as long as possible without needing like a human CFO to make these decisions for them. So I'm really excited to see like innovation start to focus around that increasingly mature business. And we always talk about you know, the future of financial services being like you. Know, the private banker for the mass market, I think kind of in the in the business banking space, it's kind of how do you give someone a CFO without you having to actually like hire a person to come in and tell you what to do with your money as a business to be financially successful. So that's kind of, yeah, my my excitement around these types of partnerships is they might start to offer more sophisticated services to these businesses that are, are emerging and are so essential to economies around the world to support growth more broadly. Yeah, I I think someone on the podcast recently was talking about startup funding and how it's not growth for growth's sake anymore. They're trying to see like actually viable business models and the SME, the micro SME market itself in Asia and LATAM in the Middle East, it's huge. Like it, the the size of the prize is phenomenal and the capabilities there are completely lacking. And this is, act- it's actually a credible business venture for so many people. So I'm hoping now we're starting to see money go towards more services like this, especially as we're starting to see better capabilities for them, be it cross-border payments, be it open banking services, starting to realise their potential. I think this is a it's a huge opportunity for the startup space. Yeah, I mean the the sort of economy in the way that it is, as you say, you know, we talked about earlier on with a lot of people. You know, we've seen Google let fifteen thousand people go. We're seeing people leaving Credit Suisse and UBS. You know, there are a lot of amazingly talented humans going into the market right now. Inevitably, like there was in two thousand and eight, there's going to be a and just a a sheer volume of amazing startups being created in this period of time. So actually, that that space getting better served is is probably uh, inevitable isn't it in terms of um, the amount of people coming into um, start startups in this space uh, like one company that i mean is is sort of promising amazing things but i'll be honest with you like goes down as my like vill- i feel very i feel very torn about this i'll be honest here like goes down as like my villain of the year is is elon musk like uh, what he's done to twitter like makes me really sad if i'm honest with you like if you go back to the beginning of 11fs uh, Twitter was like my happy place. Do you know what I mean? It was like where the fintech community was at its best. It was where you could engage with like-minded people to, you know, talk about things that you were passionate about. For now, it's like a it's like a desolate wasteland of just people shouting at each other and not listening to each other. It's it's very very sad. He has made quite an audacious claim though that 
apparently X uh, will one day replace all social media and banks. Um, and he's got a bit of form, obviously, with what he's done with PayPal. You know, he's he's not a, a stranger to uh, to financial services. But what do you guys think? Um, are you guys still active on on X, or are you uh, not so much? Nope. No, I, I I completely agree with you. I mean, a social network is not a rocket, and it isn't a car. And I mean, you know, fair, fair enough. He was in the payments industry, absolutely. I mean, you know, but but that was in the nineties, um, and that was to solve a massive gap that existed in the market, um, which I think suited suited his skill. And you know, we still haven't seen anything come out of this promise that it's going to be a super app, everything app yet. Um, meanwhile, he bleeds ad dollars um, while sort of supporting racist comments. I don't know, it's all very odd. Yeah, I think we can't deny that there is a, rightly or wrongly, there is a group and an ecosystem of people that X does serve very well. And it, we've seen it in the US and the political space. We've also seen it in the UK in the political space recently. Like there there is a group and of people who feel underserved and that while we might find them audacious to to them these it feels like he's really responding to their needs he's creating a platform that they feel at home in i think the question is how how do other platforms respond to this because it it could technically if you if you win their trust in their hearts then yeah you could win their banking feasibly and so how do we how do we start to open up other financial services and more conversations to to make it feel less like a silo and more like the open platform it once used to be like we saw it with Coots and with Nigel Farage this has got really political but there are people who do feel like ostracized by what they saw there and and felt maybe at, at the other side of it and I think it's important that we don't shut those conversations down and that we keep them open because banks aren't meant to be political leaning they're meant to be open and for everyone and if people do don't feel like that's the case what, what do we need to do differently to change that conversation? Possibly we all need to go back to X to make sure it's got more kinds of conversations like this. Yeah, potentially. I think that's all true. I suppose I'm less interested in X and slightly more interested in like TikTok and Instagram. Like I've just <laughs> seen the, I mean, maybe that's a generational thing or a personal thing, I don't know. But like if you just look at the sheer payment volumes that are now going through these platforms, mm. like they're becoming marketplaces, they're becoming, you know, areas where people transact and discover and do all sorts of like insane stuff like just the numbers coming out of TikTok now are phenomenal um, I just think it's it's super super interesting to kind of see how that has shifted the space and, and kind of to think about what those companies are going to do whether they're going to partner whether they're going to build stuff in-house um, yeah just the volume I think TikTok introduced their, their tipping feature and mm. just like the transactions going through that and just blow my mind so yeah I think it's for me, it's less about X and more about TikTok. Do you know, I, I saw a statistic though. It's like one in 10 transactions on TikTok and Instagram are actually fraudulent. Do you know, like actually, so the, the amount of products, because like, I'm a sucker for like, oh shit, that looks, that looks, yeah, I want like a Halloween mask or like, yeah, I want like uh, Christmas lights for my house type thing. Those things never turn up. Do you know what I mean? So like, uh, I, I kind of, um, I, that's not one in 10. So I haven't done 10 transactions and one of them's bad, <laughs> by the way, just put it out there. But uh, it just sort of, um, it's a worrying trend, you know, again, on the embedded side of things, actually embedding payments is a great thing if you can get that right. But actually the fulfillment off the back of it has got to be as uh, um, as slick as the sales process and the sales video that goes with it, I guess. Um, I mean, I, I feel bad on the X side of things because actually I feel like it's changed what that community structure is about. Like actually 
it felt like everything was earned before, whereas actually now it feels like it's a it's a land grab money uh, monetization play. Um, you can be anybody can be famous on Twitter if you spend enough money now, and almost actually every social media platform goes through that side of type of you know play. Like it's about uh, community and building up, and you know it's all for the good of everybody in the town square, and then actually comes monetization. Um, you know we've seen it on Facebook. Facebook basically became a pay to play. Twitter's become pay to play. LinkedIn probably is one of the few places right now where actually you can still garner really good distribution without having to spend, you know, five grand a month just to uh, for people to hear your thoughts. So, um, but um, I'm sure Microsoft have got some good ideas for how they can monetize that at some point as well. So, all right, um, we probably should wrap up because actually, I mean, I feel like I feel like, uh, like we have. Like, I, I forgot this is a podcast. This just feels like a conversation we would have over uh, a cup of tea, but. Uh, um, we probably should wrap up and maybe at this stage sort of talk about what our highlight was. Um, DBG, like what, what's your highlight of uh, Fintech Insider for you this year? I think it's probably less about what's been happening this year and more about next year for, for me, and that's AI. Um, I don't think it's really, well, not AI, generative AI. AI is an enormous thing. Generative AI is a specific thing that sits within it that everybody's now excited about and talking about. So I think we, we maybe not even next year, the year after and the year after that for financial services is going to be extremely disruptive. So we've, we've now had the EU AI Act come in. Um, there's an executive order that Biden put in a couple months ago. There's regulation coming in with regulation, banks and financial services institutions become, you know, better and happier with using the technology. So it's going to be so fascinating to track how this gets adopted. Yeah, it's fascinating that that space seems to have taken over a lot of the other things that banks were getting very excited about. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I think it's important it doesn't turn into like just the next shiny thing. But uh, bizarrely, actually, this like foreshadowing and this might be horrendous or might turn into something interesting, but I had a company reach out saying, would you like me to create you as a gen AI bot to talk to people? And I'm like, that sounds amazing. So like coming to the 11FS office soon might just be me as a Slack bot, basically. So like, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how it's quite going to make sure that my English is as poor as my actual English, just to kind of make sure it's convincing. But we'll, well, I'll, I'll kind of keep you guys posted if this turns out to be a thing or not. But uh, uh, Rachel, what about you? Uh, what was your highlight of the year? I just want to say that um, DBG took a shortcut by stealing Gen AI from the rest of us because Sorry. that's obviously the big topic. No, had to. Um, for me, I um, open banking and actually seeing it turn into products for customers is my favorite thing. I remember working and slaving over getting Open API, uh, Open APIs live and the Barclays app and we were so amazed by everything we'd done but ultimately all you could do was aggregate and it was useless and starting to see like last time I was on the podcast and um, seeing Cresco and what they're doing for um, SMEs I'm just I'm really excited by the regulation by the other geographies looking at it seeing the regulation coming in the US Canada in Saudi I think that um, we've just seen the start of open banking actually having an impact beyond PFM and graphs and net worth that doesn't actually like contribute to your life so i um I've, it's been amazing to actually see that in customers hands very cool kate what do we, what do you think what's your what's your highlight of the year oh it's gonna sound deeply selfish now compared to you know, rachel and dbg talking about like these big like, industry i mean my my personal highlight is always just talking to people on this show who are just 
building really cool stuff that I hadn't really thought about before, before I had the chance to talk to them on this show. So I was thinking back across, you know, the different people we've spoken to and I'm still kind of going around in my head. We had a great episode. I think it was um, new show 798 where we talked to Jeremy Balkan from JPNC. He's started a new kind of like refund as a service offering with Tibet Today Pay. And I just can't stop thinking about it as a kind of concept of like, actually, if you can improve that experience for customers, if you could make it so much easier for people to buy things and then get their money back, it's just a whole new opportunity space for for both businesses and for consumers. So I've not done it justice at all. So actually, if you want to listen to it properly, go listen to Jeremy explaining it on, on episode 798. But um, yeah, I think refunds as a service is something I'll be watching out for next year as well. It's amazing, isn't it? It looks like it's going rather well as well. I don't know if you, you've seen the pictures, but uh, like literally like advertising in Times Square, like that's going, it's going all right for him, which is good, but uh, which is nice. I think I'd probably echo yours as well to a certain certain degree, Kate. I mean, the, the thing that I always find exciting and the thing that you sort of look back on in, in any year is like the, the things that surprise you. Uh, the market has done things that I would never have thought possible. And definitely if you kind of look back, you know, even like a, a five-year horizon, you wouldn't have suspected all of these things would be happening in the market. But still, there's a huge amount of road to go in the industry, isn't there? There's so many, as you say, niches of fintechs that are cropping up with uh, amazing ideas to, to you know, democratize this or serve that market or, you know, bring this to that or whatever. And that seems to be increasingly everywhere around the world, right? I'd say, you know, this year we've seen an amazing rise of, you know, African fintechs that are doing amazing things and solving real problems. South America is going from strength to strength. You know, New Bank seems to be a an unstoppable force, doesn't it, in terms of its march into other uh, countries in, in South America as well. But yeah, I mean, it's it always surprises me, um, and we shouldn't be by now, that uh, just all of the amazing opportunities there in the market. So, I mean, God damn, like we've been uh, we've been definitely a bit depressing as this uh, podcast has gone on in terms of all of the the weird times in 2023. But I think we're all pretty pretty excited about what 2024 and beyond really holds, which is probably a good place to wrap up the discussion. So, thank you so much for spending the time in our offices as we always do, but actually all getting together. Uh, thank you so much, Kate. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and all the good stuff that you get up to? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Kate Moody on LinkedIn, or you can drop me an email, kate at lonefest.com. Very good. David? It's LinkedIn for me. No X, unfortunately. Um, LinkedIn, David BG. Very good. Rachel? Um, I'm Rita Rachel Pandian uh, on LinkedIn and yeah, also no X. Boycotting Twitter at this stage, aren't we? Uh, yeah, LinkedIn for me. Uh, do you know what? I said it a couple of weeks ago and I did enjoy getting a bunch of emails. So you can email me on david at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for everybody for listening. If you like what you've heard, then follow our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and also helps other people find the show as well. As always, if you want to join in the conversation, you can find us on all social media channels, including X. We're not boycotting it just yet. Uh, search for Fintech Insider or search for 11FS or if you really want to email us on podcasts at 11FS.com thank you very much for listening everybody we hope you've had a great year and we look forward to seeing you next year goodbye